1: Hello and welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Mike Regan. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg.
2: And I'm Valdana Hayek, a cross asset reporter with Bloomberg. And this
1: week on the show. Well, there's no getting around it. The world has changed a tremendous amount in just the last six weeks. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has not only destabilized Eastern Europe, but it's threatening to cause disruption in global alliances and macroeconomics, the likes of which most of us have never seen in our lives. We'll try to unpack it all with a very well-known economist who focuses on global economics. But first, Valdana, I thought of you the other night because... My daughter is she's very good at math. She's taking AP calculus and she was doing her homework and I I confess I'm a little rusty on my calculus. I uh I, I haven't used it in, in about 30 years. <laughs> And so she knows this, and she knows not to ask me any advice on calculus. And you know, I'm sitting in the room watching basketball, and she she comes at me with a worksheet with a bunch of calculus problems on it. And I think she sensed the panic in my eye, and she said, "Don't worry, Dad. I it's not a calculus question; it's a grammar question. I, I I've noticed a grammar problem in this word problem, and, and I and I need you to tell me if this is right or wrong. And I thought this sounds like Vildana, like Vildana. You would you would like refuse to answer that calculus question until the grammar issue was is resolved? I feel like
2: I'm one of those annoying people who will point out grammar mistakes to other people. You know, even when they're talking, or especially at <laughs> Bloomberg with with all of our stories, I'll email people and I'll say you misspelled this. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it it very rarely goes appreciated. Yeah.
1: Let, let the record show you're the one who said annoying, not me. By by the way about that. Yeah. Okay, but. The, the segue, you're waiting for the segue, I know. And, and, and I was thinking about the calculus of global relations right now, I think is about uh, as tricky of an equation as we've seen in years. And I think we got the perfect guess to solve it for us. What do you
3: think?
2: We do. That's a great transition. I wasn't sure where you were going with it at first, but great tra- transition. I'm really, really excited to have Adam Posen president of the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Join our show today. Adam, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
3: Thank you, and thank you for not segueing to me about being annoying. That would have been... <laughs> <laughs>
2: or, about, or about calculus.
3: <laughs> I, I, I or maybe you up. would appreciate that. that
1: up, so <laughs> nice. Thank you, Adam. I know I'm not the only one who's... I've lost all of my, my high school and college calculus. It's just gone. I, I it's, it's like a new language to me.
3: Yeah, it's great to me, yeah.
1: But, but my advice to her was, when you're doing calculus homework, don't worry about the grammar. You're wasting your time. Just... just uh,
3: just, just, get over. No, right. I think, I think, I think your daughter's onto something, right? As we <laughs> demonstrate, it's how the question is phrased, even if it's a word problem that matters, as you are about to demonstrate.
2: It, is, it does matter, Adam. I want to start out very broadly speaking. I was hoping you could just lay out. What the Peterson Institute is for our audience and what you guys are all about.
3: Sure, thank you. We're a nonprofit, nonpartisan, what's called a think tank or research institute. We are committed to the idea that globalization, well managed, openness, free or trade, free move of ideas and people is welfare enhancing, is, is which is econ speak for better for the people of the world and people of the U.S., and that there are policies that matter in managing that. So our staff, which is about 45 senior scholars, half full-time, half academics elsewhere, are people who've generally served in senior roles in government and at some point in their life got a PhD and did some research and now do policy work instead of teaching or instead of making big money.
1: i I want to get into sort of the the nitty-gritty of the the current events uh around the world um but i wanted to first take a step back and just talk about the the notion of globalization uh and and the the term globalists you know this has obviously become sort of a a a loaded term among many in politics on the right especially um um starting on uh, you know during the trump administration and and now obviously you know uh this whole notion of you know what's going to happen to the the global order of economics uh, after Russia's invasion. Uh, You wrote a really interesting piece on this uh, asking, you know, is this the end of of globalization? But I was thinking back to when I was a kid and I think you and I are are pretty much in the ballpark of, of uh, same age, you know, meaning we're, we're very young guys, obviously. Um, but young saying, and strapping. Young yeah. and strapping, bright futures. And, but I was thinking back to, say, the 70s and 80s when we were kids and there was very much a, a, a major pushback to globalization back then. You know, Japan was sort of emerging as a major manufacturing powerhouse. Um, OPEC, there was a lot of resentment towards OPEC because of the oil embargoes of the 70s. And there was very much this sort of nationalist, in America push. Um, And and year after year, you'd hear politicians saying, you know, I'm going to fix this. We're going to bring back manufacturing. We're going to bring back, you know, the steel mills and, and everything else, all these other good blue collar jobs.
0: But it all ended up
1: to be sort of just talk, right? And through the years, it seemed like sort of a further integration of the US and the global economy was, was almost inevitable, like like gravity, right? You know, um, with better technology, uh, better transportation, air travel, that it, it was just inevitable that the world was gonna trade with each other more and become sort of more liberal uh globally as far as trade goes. So I'm wondering, is is this episode We're experiencing now and and really which started under the Trump administration. Is it a different is this a game changer now or is it, you know, is it sort of the same idea that there's this pushback, but that sort of that gravity of globalization will will take over again and and the world will bend towards that that outcome eventually?
3: It's actually a little worse than you portray it. Um, the it isn't just since Trump. The, we we published some research our colleagues did about two years ago, where we decided to look at the facts. And the U.S. has actually been deglobalizing, or closing itself off, more accurately, uh, basically since roughly two thousand. Um, so it's twenty years. It accelerated under Trump, and but it and it got more vocal. But actually, we have been falling behind. And when I say falling behind, I mean that quite literally. The rest of the world, including high-income democracies like those in Europe and Japan, but also... Places that you would not think of as terribly liberal or open have been continuing to open up. The U.S. is a very big outlier. It's not just trade. It's foreign direct investment. It's trade deals. It's immigration. the whole host of dimensions on which the U.S. has been closing itself off increasingly for 20 years. So you're right that the perception is that globalization was this juggernaut that wiped out everything in front of it. But that's actually a false characterization. What has happened, and I do think is the turning point now, and there I agree with you, is that these longer-term worries about China not playing fair and taking advantage of us, and this long-term political sense in the U.S. that we we have to protect the, the limited number of manufacturing jobs in the world is the problem. Those things are accelerated and reinforced by what's happening now in Ukraine by the Russian invasion. And so I do think we're at a turning point where the world is starting to break into economic blocks in a way we haven't seen, as you said, in your intro, all time.
2: So you have been writing quite a bit, just to bring this all back to the recent event, you've been writing quite a bit about this, which is why I, I'm so happy to have you on the podcast this week. But in one of your recent pieces, you you, you did write exactly that, that the world is splitting into two camps one centered around China, one around the U.S. So I wanted to ask you to, to talk about that and what that looks like and how that develops.
3: Yeah. And I'm grateful to you, Vildana, for inviting me on the show and noticing what I've been writing. I and mean, then you're doing a think tank that's all you got is hoping people notice what you say. Um i think the splitting into two camps isn't going to be absolute so you know trump and his u.s trade representative lightheiser had this term decoupling from china which they didn't really do but to the extent they tried it as my colleague at Peterson, Chad Bowne and others have documented it failed. Um, But what I do think is happening is what I call corrosion of globalization, that there were these linkages along multiple lines, including people going back and forth, ideas going back and forth, business norms, as well as things like trading in hard goods manufacturers. Um, And that's going to get increasingly separated. I think actually the trade stuff will continue more than other things because it's harder to control and it's harder to substitute for. But, you know, we're already seeing restrictions on American ownership in China and vice versa on Chinese ownership in the U.S. We're already seeing a lot of suspicion about Chinese grad students and and otherwise students and professors in the U.S. I think a lot of it's exaggerated, but whatever it is, we're going to end up in a world where there's going to be a lot of restrictions focused on keeping technology from moving between the U.S. and China and between U.S. allies and Chinese allies. And that's a world that probably is slower innovation uh, that reinforces the divisions because you start having different technical standards, you start having different product lines, and and so it just becomes self-reinforcing.
1: You know, and Adam, I want to uh, sort of ask you to put on your your central banker's hat. Um, and, and listeners who aren't familiar with Adam, uh, go read his Wikipedia pages. One of these fascinating resumes. I we would need a whole other podcast to, to go through it all. But uh, worked for some time at the Federal Reserve, the Bank of England. Um, uh, I, I don't know if you worked for, consulted with the Bundesbank in Germany. Um, Long ago, long ago, well, I was thinking thank yeah. you, thank you for touting my not my Wikipedia pitch. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good one. It's a good one. I encourage people to read it. But I, I want to talk specifically about um, inflation. You know, one of the things people like to say about this deterioration of globalization is that it, it will be an upward pressure on inflation, uh, obviously, going forward. But you know, when we look at this red hot inflation that we, we're seeing right now, there's a lot of finger pointing going on. Obviously, you know, there's uh, some research from the Fed sort of pointing at the fing- finger at fiscal policy. Um, I think a lot of people are pointing their finger at the Fed for keeping policy so loose, uh, perhaps for too long. Um, the deglobalization and obviously the supply chain issues that we've seen around the world. I wonder if, if in your head, it's possible to rank sort of uh, what the contributors have been. Uh, to inflation. And, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, is there anything you think the Fed or uh, Congress and the government did wrong uh, as far as monetary or fiscal policy to to get us in this situation?
3: Yeah, I I think the the story is a little more complicated in terms of the linkage between globalization and foreign policy. I think the reduction in openness, it does uh, diminish the amount of Downward price pressure you get from abroad and it diminishes competition and over time, that's bad for both inflation and productivity. But I think in the short term, it's actually kind of disinflationary because it it it, it lowers the return on capital because you're investing duplications and redundancies. It lowers the the diversification of capital because you're having to keep more money at home either because of regulation or fear. And so in the first instance, it slows things down. In terms of why we have such inflation in the U.S. right now, I think a chunk of it is stuff that nobody foresaw, that people, myself included, lots of much smarter people in the central banking community, didn't fully get just how big a deal it was going to be to reopen the economy after COVID shutdowns, and in particular, how disruptive that would be to labor markets. Now it's interesting if you compare the US and Europe the euro area say before the Russians invaded Ukraine their inflation rate was meaningfully lower than the US and you know and their difference between core and headline inflation meaning how much of it was just attributable to energy versus more general inflation was much bigger than the US and I think that was consistent with a story that we did much better than the US had done in 2008-10 and in the past about looking after people when there was an external, uh, an exogenous crisis, in this case, the pandemic. But we didn't do it quite as well as the Europeans did. The Europeans ran their aid programs to encourage people to stay in their jobs. They subsidized people working part-time or people being furloughed, but not laid off. Whereas in classic US fashion, Most workers who had to get aid had to actually lose their job. And I think that led to a lot of the job switching and bidding and mismatch that we saw um, driving up wages. But the other thing, and here people like my colleagues, LaVey Blanchard, Jason Furman, Larry Summers, I think are right, is... The American rescue package of you know, early 2021, the big additional fiscal package that the Biden administration passed through Congress really was too much in too short a time. I mean, it, we, we didn't need as much as we spent then and it was all spent in a pretty short order. And so you did get overheating. So then you turn to the Fed and I promise I won't go on forever, but then you turn to the Fed I think the Fed took a reasonable gamble, which was that if we run the economy hot, which there's a lot of good reasons to want to do, especially since we kept undershooting inflation for years before this, um, there's a chance the economy overheat, but we can afford to see how low we can go. I think the Fed took the gamble, but I think they should have, and I would have sitting in their place, made the same gamble. But I think by the time the biden administration announced the american rescue package and certainly by middle of 2021 it was very clear the gamble turned out badly and they should have been changing policy and admitting they should needed to change policy meaning move towards tightening by then i don't fully get what happened essentially between april and december of last year mm-hmm.
1: Uh, Adam I think I'll, I can speak for Voldana when I say that but journalists like us we like it when people like you go on forever so so feel free we, <laughs> we do. Well,
2: I, love, I, was that, say the
4: same I thing. love
3: to hear myself talk so this is one <laughs> perfect
2: uh, Adam what about the supply chains component of this I I heard another interview uh you did with the marketplace podcast a couple weeks ago and you were talking about how there's this fear potentially with other countries that they're thinking maybe U.S. the U.S. and others could start to cut them off. Countries are moving production. I think the term that's used a lot is onshore or onshoring. And, you know, we're hearing announcements from, from countries like Hungary. They're importing food because of the, the issues around supply chains and what's happening, obviously, with Russia and Ukraine. So, how does how does that play a part in all of this
3: oh it definitely plays a part Alana. and we've got you know the the first thing that we said about supply chains is that they weren't designed in any sort of top down way they were they were they sort of grew up organically you had these large multinational companies who would make individual decisions at the working level of this department says i gotta cut costs oh i can move this from u.s to china or from china to nepal and uh or if you're german from poland to romania um and and each individual decision may have made sense but then it ended up With a situation which was revealed ex post to be, we had really overextended the supply chains. And similarly, lots of small businesses as well as large businesses said, oh, this is great. Just in time delivery. I don't need to worry about inventory. I can get what I need whenever I want it. Oops, that didn't really work out. And so I think there is just a genuine learning experience and adjustment that's worth doing in in terms of recalibrating what's in the supply chains and thinking about the more top-down, in a sense, as a risky portfolio of investments rather than as a system you could rely on. And my colleagues at Peterson, I mentioned Chad Bound, but also Mary Lovely in particular, have been doing a lot of interesting work on this. Um, but then, as you mentioned, there, there it starts being this sort of political angle to it. And that's geopolitical angle to it. And that's where things really get into trouble. The basic economic instinct and analysis is you're better off diversifying than trying to be self-reliant. You're better off stockpiling than trying to insist on production. Uh, First, directly, just over time, this puts you less at risk for where you get your stuff from. And second, because if you go into a world where everybody's scared the other people won't give them what they want, then you get hoarding, which is what we saw sadly at the start of the COVID. Pandemic, where the rich countries hoarded medical equipment and vaccines rather than allowing each other and the poor countries to get access, and so and so now we see this situation where Germany made itself much too dependent on one supplier of energy, as did Italy, in this case Russia, and it would be better if they had been more diversified, but um, you know. Uh, That's not the way it worked out, and yet we still have Americans, officials, like uh, USTR Ambassador Tai or or even President Biden himself, saying we need to make more at home, we need manufacturing at home. Frankly, that's gonna make us worse off.
1: I feel like there is a certain element of politician uh, who wants to bring the manufacturing back on shore, but also cap immigration. Um, And it it seems, it seems to me like you can have one or the other. If you try to do both, you're going to be in trouble. I don't, I don't see how we could build, say a Foxconn type of manufacturing facility or a a semiconductor foundry without, you know, some supply of both low skill and high skill skill immigrants to, to pull that off. Is that, Is
3: is that basically, you know, the the deal? I think you're exactly right on two counts. First, that for all the talk about economics, these are very much political decisions um, that not by the individual companies necessarily, but the elected officials that often it's the same people who are anti-immigration, are also anti-trade, also anti-foreigner in other ways. And we saw this in the UK and Brexit as well, that it, you know, it wasn't just this rational decision, oh, I don't want to have too much regulation from the EU. The same people who were voting for Brexit were the same people who were nasty. The refugees, for the most part, who were the same people who are just generally suspicious of foreigners. So there's that element to it. But you made a very important point that immigration is critical to all kinds of processes, not just manufacturing, services, the functioning of the U.S. economy. And this has been true across our entire history. This is frankly true going back to the ancient Egyptians where they brought in the, the, the Israelites of the time to work the fields. You know, you, you really set your economy back when you don't make good use of the people who want to come work there and and so this this reshoring when it is combined for ideological reasons or even unwittingly with anti-immigration is definitely going to fail
2: i also wanted to ask you how these trends manifest themselves for the average person so if the average american you know if if the average american is looking around how do we see some of these trends playing out i think you mentioned we're going to have less innovation but how how else is the world changing around us on an everyday basis sort of yeah i
3: think well i mean clearly part of it is the short-term inflation and that's very meaningful people meaningful for people part of it is we're already starting to see less variety in in our stores and you know in the image sometimes when people say that is oh you a feed liberal you want 20 kinds of cheese and there's only (laughs) cheddar but it also means things very practically in terms of what kinds of cars are available, what kinds of computer capacities are available, what kinds of training, frankly, is available. Because you start pulling out, for example, the thousands of Chinese graduate students and researchers from the US science system, we don't have enough people to teach a lot of classes uh, and to to enable us to develop our, our science capabilities. And so we're already starting to see some of these things. I think we're also going to see very soon, um, you know, probably after some correction in the stock market, whenever the Fed hikes plenty, which they will, um, you're going to see somewhat lower returns going forward because people are not going to be able to diversify and and money sort of shut up in inside the U.S. Uh, doesn't have to elicit as competitive a yield. So I think people are going to really start feeling it very soon. Yeah.
1: Adam, I got to say, I, I personally, I do want the 20 types of cheese. I'm, I'm you can call me whatever you want. I'm I'm down with that. But uh, speaking of food, um, it, that's a big topic these days. I don't know if this takes you out of your your comfort zone at all, because it's not often that. Sort of food and grain and fertilizer prices enters the discussion of macroeconomics, but I feel like they are now and and perhaps will even more so in the future. You know, obviously Ukraine, Russia are both big producers of wheat, uh, huge producers of all manner of fertilizers. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about potential shortages of both. Uh, we've already seen the prices uh, go through the roof. You know, how are you thinking about this in economic terms and really geopolitical terms? I mean, is this the sort of the setup for the type of Arab Spring that we saw where high high food prices sort of led to a lot of destabilization in the Arab world? Um, How big of a risk is this just for the the world in general in the next year
3: or two? It's a very astute question. And and again, My colleagues at Peterson Institute, we have some experts working on this. One is a political scientist, Colin Hendricks, who thinks about this very much in the geopolitical context. But also our colleagues, Catherine Ross and Sherman Robinson, have worked on food issues. The the most important point is to understand that this is very much an issue for the developing world. And so that's why I say you're very right to mention, for example, Arab Spring, um, that it turns out that. Egypt and other parts of North Africa and the Middle East are A, very heavily dependent on wheat. Think of pita bread for a large part of the diet of poor people. And B, they are very dependent on Ukraine and Russia for that. Um, And again, similar to what we said about medical technology, as rich folk in the U.S., and I know not everybody in the U.S. is rich, but on average by world standards, as rich folk in the U.S., we get the stuff because we're willing to pay the higher price and the developing world doesn't. Um and Secretary Yellen, Treasury Secretary Yellen's latest speech talks a little bit about some of these things. Um so it, it is an energy prices are very real for a lot of these countries, the people in these countries, that they are net importers of energy and energy is priced in dollars, which means it's very expensive for people in these countries. So there's a lot going on there that's pretty scary and could have lasting geopolitical effects in the sense of maybe not revolutions, but changes in government, radicalization of people, social unrest. Because, you know, hunger and lack of energy is is a big deal, um, mm-hmm. to understate it. So I, I I can just go on. I don't want to because it's it's it this is the reality. And it's there are things the globe can do about it uh even in the context of global warming there are things we can do but it requires a level of global coordination that we were inadequate in providing we being the rich country governments um, during covid and so i'm not very confident we're going to respond any better this time around alas
2: What what types of responses? Because we did see the US, the EU and a bunch of other countries response very respond very forcefully to to Russia in terms of all of the sanctions that have been put on. And that a lot of people were saying did show this sort of unity among the cohort of of Western or democratically uh, you know democratic yeah, countries. So
3: yeah, no, I think that's a fair point. Um and in the piece you already cited, I've written about that. I think the unity and and activism that the European Union has shown on this uh being the the same coordinated sanctions for funds, of not just the US but Singapore, Australia, Switzerland, Japan, Korea is really impressive. But that's and even though that costs them money, that is offensive. It's another thing to then say, oh, let's worry about the spillovers on people in Africa or South Asia or Central America. Um, and unfortunately, those those are separate issues. And again, I'm not blaming the Europeans. I mean, on, on a year-to-year basis, they give five to tenfold in aid, Uh, and open up their markets to trade as much or more than the U.S. does uh, from developing countries. But, you know, I just, I I would, there is terrible things that happened during COVID um, that's already put burdens on these countries. The U.S. having inflation and having to raise rates puts another burden on these countries. And then shortages of energy and food is a third burden. So, you know, people at the IMF, like the managing director and the new deputy managing director, Gita Gobinef, have been speaking about this. But you said at the start, uh, what are the policies? I don't see much out there in the, in the bucket of proposals. I mean, there should be coordinated buying and transferring of, of limited resources over a temporary period. There should be strategic reserves like we have for energy, for food and medicine, for people in the developing world. There should be efforts to assure countries that if they are willing to export and sell their grain or or their soybean oil or whatever that they will be able to get trade in return because that's the only way you get countries to be willing to export to others um, and as we mentioned as we discussed the Biden administration is not being very good about that so there's a lot to do, um, and I hope I am completely wrong about how little, in my view, uh, the the U.S. is likely to do on this front. <laughs> yeah,
1: Adam. to bring it back um, to to the realm where Vildan and I uh, exist in in you know focused on markets. Um, uh, couple things I'm curious what you think about. The um, one is obviously there's a lot of talk about how the U.S. and European sanctions against Russia could potentially disrupt the dollar's role as sort of the most important international currency. You know, there's already been talk about uh, uh, Saudi Arabia perhaps selling oil to China priced in yuan. Uh, Russia is demanding rubles um, for its energy. Um, so, A, I'm curious, and, and from what I've read uh, of yours, I, I don't get that you buy sort of the, the death of the dollar story. Um, so, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and also what you're thinking about interest rates going forward. I mean, are, it just seems like there's no lid on rates at this point and, and nothing that's going to stop this ascent in in yields. Um, so, I'm curious how you're thinking about both the dollar and and interest rates right now. Sure.
3: sure. And obviously, this is what a lot of us are thinking about, and I'm spending most of my thinking time as opposed to management time on this um in terms of the dollar there's no question that the first instinct of people seeing what the u.s alliance did to russian oligarchs to russian companies to putin to the russian economy say oh my god i would be better off if I had some way of getting around the U.S. financial system. I had some way of having assets that either couldn't be frozen or could be used, no matter what the U.S. did. And this is particularly true for you know, people who borderline criminal regimes, people who are politically deemed enemies of the U.S., people with kleptocratic regimes. But it's also true, frankly, even for a lot of businesses, individuals, companies, even countries that might agree with the sanctions on Russia in the case of this invasion, but then are forced to think, but, you know, the U.S. is not that politically reliable. What happens if they suddenly turn on me? Uh, this shows they're willing to do that. So there is that sense of people thinking, oh, my God, I wish I had an alternative to the dollar. But the, the fact is there's a different problem that over overrides that, which is you need an alternative. And if we're in a world where it's not just the U.S. throwing its weight around, but a world which, as we've said, I think is dividing along political, geopolitical lines, then you're sort of stuck with, well, I can put my money in China or in Chinese assets, but then can I get it out from there? Will it be useful to me? And you look at things like, The Chinese authorities deciding, no, Jack Ma, you can't do an anti IPO because you've annoyed us. Or, you know, no, all of you who owned assets in private school teaching, those assets are now worthless. Or, you know, we're maintaining capital controls on even resident Chinese born people on how much money they can take out of the the economy. So you end up with a world where. People are not thrilled about being under the dollar, but because of the security situation, um, the alternatives become even less attractive. And people are pushing more money, frankly, into safe assets, what are considered safe assets like the dollar. Um, So I think over the long term, meaning five years or more out, you will see some pressures against the dollar or attempts to create other financial systems or to build up what the Chinese payment system looks like. But for the next several years, I don't see it as as on net having much effect on the dollar. If anything, the the general security environment will lead to more of uh, excess savings chasing the dollar because there's not as many places the money can go.
2: So can you actually talk more about that, about these places where money can go and where people will be turning to in terms of investments? I I think you wrote recently that there will be new limits on where people can invest their savings, and that's going to drive down the range of diversification and average returns. So where do you see investors, people putting their money?
3: It's a really good question. And and I think you know it, it's there's obviously this idea among tech bros and libertarians and unholy breedings of them that cryptocurrency cybercurrencies are going to be the answer i mean it fits just like we were talking about the ideology of anti-globalization the anti-statist ideology leads to people saying hey this is exactly what we, we set up cyber for, be it, be it Bitcoin or whatever, because the whole point is, look, the state does expropriate your money. The Russians are expropriating things. The Americans are expropriating things. This is why you want an asset that's outside the state. But again, this sort of misses the point. The, the, the reason we have assets based on state issuance, meaning cash and treasuries, is because only the state can guarantee things. And in fact, I think whatever happened at the crypto fest that you went to in Florida, um, the uh, the future for these, these currencies is not very good because in the kind of situation we're in, they're gonna be confronted with either you're adhering to the sanctions that we're putting on banks and other places to make sure that your your fake currency doesn't become a way to avoid sanctions and if the firms agree to that then they lose some of their appeal to the libertarian nutjobs and on the other hand if they don't agree to that then they're basically violating sanctions that are subject to criminal prosecution so you know, it may or may not kill them, but I, if I were sitting in, I don't mean the individuals, I mean these current, these fake currencies. Um, if I were sitting in a, a regulatory seat in the U.S. government right now, I would be using this as my excuse to force <laughs> as many of these, these entities to choose one side or the other. And anybody who chooses to say, I'm not going to comply with sanctions, I'll put them out of business. Um, yeah. So you know. So then comes what do you what? What else are you going to put your money in? And so you're going to end up. You know, I think the euro potentially is a big winner from this process. Um, and the more Europe acts in concert and and the issues, they have a real opportunity to issue euro bonds as an alternative safe asset to the U.S. Um, to the dollar, and and there would be huge demand for that um but besides europe i don't see any other new asset classes that will will be able to retain all the attributes you want which is liquidity property rights and wide acceptance
2: mike just to catch catch our listeners up uh, he Adam is referring to the Crypto conference that I'm attending this week in Miami
1: Yeah, Vildana Is surrounded by that What Adam called the unholy breed of Techno Bros and Libertarians, Bill well, Don. I hope you rent a Lambo for the week. You could put that on the expense account. Rent a Lambo.
2: You think? And we, I if, think we if should. If you permit it, I'll do it.
1: We should fly Adam down to sit in the back seat of the Lambo. I'm not sure they have back seats actually, but he could sit in the Lambo and 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 you could you know give rides to Techno Bros and have Adam give give. Yeah, we we'll drive it. around Miami. That would be a good. That would be a good separate separate <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Adam, I wanted to ask you a little bit about. Um, Peterson's uh, relationship with uh, the government there in DC um, and the White House From what I read, you know, uh, you know, Peterson, obviously, uh, to me, it sounds like you try to take a nonpartisan sort of objective uh, approach to things. Um, And you have formerly had a dialogue with both Republican and and Democratic administrations, you know, the Bush administration, the Clinton administration. Um, It sounds to me like that all sort of ended uh, with the Trump administration. and, and, And correct me if I'm wrong about that, but... I'm curious, what's it? What is it like now? Is there, a, a, again, sort of a, a dialogue with the Biden administration? And if, you know, you got five minutes with Joe Biden, what would sort of be your advice to him right now with this this economic situation?
3: Yeah, so let me be very clear. I do not have access to the president. Um, <laughs> and uh, it is very rare in my career that I have had access to president, whoever oh, may be president. Um, but we are generally, with the exception of the Trump years, seen as people who honestly are trying to make a difference on policy, people whose views broadly are worth considering, even if it turns out that we uh, might disagree on some things, people who are evidence-based, and therefore, as a result of all that, people are reasonably influential in certain spheres. and. I mean, that's the goal of being a think tank, to be seen as in line with your values, honestly making arguments that the policymakers should consider. And um, and occasionally you get resonance and you're able to get them to do things you want them to do, can persuade them that they should do it. So. Under the Trump administration, like people in all kinds of fields and areas, you know, it was your political enemy. You disagree with us. Therefore, we're going to say nasty things about you. I'm grateful and glad we never got horribly attacked. We never got upset by, you know, some some flash mob, either on the Internet or in general, that the Trump associated people have been known to sick on people they don't like. We've been fortunate that way. But you know, we essentially, with the exception of people at the Council of Economic Advisors, we essentially had no contact with senior officials in in the Trump administration. In the 40 years of the Institute's existence, or 35 years prior to that, um, we had varying degrees of influence, but we always were in conversation. Um, We were in conversation. Constructively with people in the first Bush administration, very actively in conversation with and hope helpful, I think, to people in the Clinton administration. We continued that in the second Bush administration. Uh, we continued that in the Obama administration. So then you get to the Biden administration and, you know, it. like, again, like everybody else, nothing special to us. The Biden administration respects rule of law and respects the idea that people can disagree and respects that you should try to do the best thing in government. And whatever else you think of the Biden administration, those three things are very true and are good things. And so we do have some resumption of normal interaction with senior officials in the administration. But, big but, um the administration including some people i know well personally and have spoken to is in i think a very different and wrong position on a lot of trade issues and a lot of globalization related issues and they believe that people like us and some of our current staff and affiliates who were officials in the Clinton and Obama administrations were equally as wrong in their approach to trade and globalization and that it's politically and economically important to put that aside. So we are agreed to disagree and we don't have anywhere near as much interaction with the people on the say trade side of the administration as we do with people on the finance macroeconomic side of the administration. That's fair. I mean that's very different from being shut out and people denying what you say. But I I wish we had a bit more opportunity to persuade uh, some of our colleagues in the Biden administration that where they're essentially continuing Trump administration policies on immigration, on trade, on foreign direct investment, they're making mistakes. <laughs>
2: In terms of globalization and this scenario that uh, we've been talking about, about the corrosion of globalization, I actually wanted to ask you what what the upsides are to this, because I heard an interview recently with a Washington Post reporter who actually was talking in response to one of your recent articles, and she was going over everything uh, we've just been talking about. But she was saying that there is potentially some upsides, and that, for instance, millennials are welcoming to some of the the aspects or some of the changes that we might see, including maybe better workplace practices mm-hmm. and, and that type of thing. So I wanted to ask you what some of these maybe more positive developments might be.
3: Yeah, and, and, and there, for example, I frankly agree with a lot of the things the Biden administration has wanted to do, even though they didn't get through Congress yet, a lot of them. Um, and I agree with a lot of the things they're doing on executive order basis. Well, the the sad fact is that the US treats its workers worse than any other high income democracy, at least in economic terms. We, we, We give a lower share of the economy to labor wages as opposed to capital. We do not provide universal health insurance. We do not provide universal higher education. We do not provide high quality education. We don't even provide water. It's drinkable in some places, and even in countries that are far behind us in per capita income, they mostly do provide all those things. Additionally, at some economic cost, but I think justifiably, and not at huge economic cost, these countries have more labor regulation that protect workers. Um, they protect them more from abuse by by their employers. They protect them more from uh, What happens if they get unemployed? They protect them more in terms of health and safety. So, you know, the U.S. is totally behind, in my view, on all these things. And you could move the U.S. a long way in that direction before getting anywhere close to where the economic costs become large versus what you're doing to help people. And the Biden administration has heard people, including the current nominee for the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, Lisa Cook from Michigan State University, pointing out that lost, it's not only that, it's not only unfair, but you're leaving money on the table in the sense of all this talent among women, among people of color that you're not fully developing and using. And I think that's undeniable. And although on that issue, uh, we're less, we're, we're we're bad, but the differential between our badness and you say European badness is just great. Um, so ultimately, well, Donna, when you talk about the younger people and what they want. You know, I think it would be a great thing if we got more political pressure for that, uh, that including the um, major acts to make it easier to unionize, that including much higher health and safety standards, which to me would be a very logical conclusion of the COVID experience um, The removal in a free market way of some of these restrictions state by state about what your qualifications are, the removal of some of these terrible non-compete agreements, non-disclosure agreements that workers in very, you know, non-technical jobs or not like fancy consultants still get constrained so that they can't jobs easily. There's a lot of stuff out there. A colleague of ours at Peterson, who's primarily at MIT Sloan School, Anna Stansbury, has done some very powerful work saying, you know, you can raise the minimum wage, but even before you do that, you got to make sure the workers can force employers to actually pay the minimum wage. You have to enforce it. Um, so there's a whole agenda to be done, and it is very worthwhile to keep asking the obvious question, you know, if Germany and France and England and Australia and Canada, and for that matter, even Spain and, and Portugal, you know, manage to provide all this for their workers and their economies don't crater, why the hell don't we? Yep. Yeah.
1: Yep. Absolutely. Well that I will say there's one aspect of this podcast where globalization is very very, very important. You know where? You know what I mean.
2: The craziest, weirdest thing.
1: <laughs> the craziest things we saw this week. I've got a special global crazy thing tailor made oh, you for, do? for Adam. But first, let's let's hear yours first.
2: Well, I'm going to go with something that I've been seeing at the Bitcoin 2022 Miami conference this week, and and there's a couple of sort of uh, you know attention grabbing things that have been happening. One is that the the mayor of miami unveiled a statue of a of a it looks very much like the charging bull statue on wall street except this one is more uh i don't know it sort of looks like a transformer it has blue laser (laughs) eyes and it's, it's meant to speak to the crypto crowd and then just hearing some of the panels and some of the speeches Mike Novogratz who is uh you know he's the CEO of uh, Galaxy Digital he came out and he said he could see Bitcoin going to a million dollars eventually a million dollars per coin so and that court, and is of
3: course he doesn't own any of that <laughs> he's got, he's no vested no inter
2: interest yeah.
1: No purely objective analysis there Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> i'm sure Vildana, your conference is uh there's an abundance of crazy things we'll have to we'll have to wrap them up uh all the ones you saw next week too because uh, i think yeah,
2: you'll we'll have week. to do bloopers or something yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> how about
1: you adam have you seen anything crazy this week uh
3: yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of crazy stuff out there. Obviously, um, to me, the the craziest thing is I, I is the disjunction between currency movements and reality. So, you know, Turkey's there; they've got, I think, a sixty percent annualized inflation rate at the moment, which is a lot, and yet somehow Erdogan's still going, and the Turkish lira hasn't gone to zero. Similarly, I am happen to be in London at the moment, and I love London. As you mentioned, I used to work at the Bank of England as an MPC member for a while. But, you know, I look at Brexit, I look at how badly... The UK is in terms of labor supply and energy supply and market opportunities. And I'm like, why the hell is the pound up? And <laughs> they've, stopped, they've stopped supposedly taking money from Russian oligarchs. So I, I really don't know what's keeping the pound up. But anyway, those are the things I'd be.
1: Yep. Looking down. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. And now I've I've read the, the ruble is uh back to where it was before the war began. Who would have
3: guessed that? Yeah, I mean that I just have to be very clear that the you know, as far as we can understand it, and a colleague has something coming out of this, that's because there's no actual rubles being traded. Right. So, right, not, right. so the number is whatever the it's,
1: central it's a it's a print on a screen, not not a true uh not yeah. a true eye. Well, Adam, I'm going to leverage uh, your Bank of England experience for my crazy thing Um, because, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I picture when Bank of uh, England policymakers get together that about 80% of the discussion is official business and then the other 20% is uh, all about soccer. Is Is that a good ratio, you think?
3: Bradley, it's all about cricket, which I even understand. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well,
1: I'm sure there's some. Th- you mean football, Mike? Football. I'm sure there's <laughs> some football football it's, talk. It
3: shows, it shows, it shows no, there's some, but poor <laughs> cricket.
1: All right. We'll find a cricket crazy thing next next week. But in th- this week, one of the most rage inducing incidents in international football for uh, fans of the English side was in 1986 uh, quarterfinal world cup game uh uh england was playing argentina which had the famous player diego maradona i've actually talked about this on the podcast before but maradona scored in that game what's known as the hand of god goal because he he went up for a header and it went in and the refs didn't notice that he had used his hand uh but all the photographers caught it the replay showed it uh england fans were outraged But the goal went in the books and they asked him afterward, they said, well, how did you score that goal? Was it a a handball, actually? And he said, it was a little bit of the head of Diego Maradona and a little bit of the hand of God that (laughs) made that goal. So famously became known as the hand of God goal. He scored a second goal in that game that was much more impressive. He, He charged like... 60 yards straight ahead. Um, and all the defenders were expecting him to fake left or right. And they kind of stumbled over themselves, but he charged straight ahead And Mervyn King, the the, uh, former head of the Bank of England, actually referenced that in a speech one time saying, you know, policy can work the same way. The the market's expecting us to go to negative rates and that alone is is influencing the markets um, uh, so that we don't have to actually go there. So a famous goal, uh, albeit a, a very bittersweet defeat for England. Now, how do we get this to the craziest thing? The Jersey... Maradona war for that game is up for auction at Sotheby's. Um, And let me, I I like to keep a a poker face when I tell you about these things. Um, So I'm not going to sort of hint at what the, uh, what the value of this is, but I will read one quote from the auction house and they, they call this the moment is iconic in the history of sports. Uh, They're going to say, a, this shirt is on a small list of the most important sports memorabilia items in the world. So, Maradona's shirt, where he wore the hand of God, where he wore during the Hand of God gold, and what's called the Goal of the Century, the second goal he scores, up for auction. Maradona, what do you think Sotheby's is expecting for this jersey?
2: I'm going with one hundred twenty thousand dollars. <laughs> one hundred twenty
1: thousand dollars. What do you think, Adam? You, if this were Prices Right, uh, what, would you, what would you what would you bid for? the maradona jersey
3: 350 million
1: rubles (laughs) (laughs) i gotta break out the currency translator to figure out uh how much that is worth i think you're probably closer though four million dollars 5.2 uh i'm sorry four million pounds 5.2 million u.s dollars they they expect for My this jersey and lest any english soccer fans get outraged at me for even bringing up this episode i i want to point out that this may have been the goal of the century but that shirt is the trade of the century because at the end of the game maradona swapped jerseys with the english midfielder steve hodge and he's kept that jersey this whole time and now is this de- deciding to deciding to put wow. it up so Maradona had... I'm shocked by this. Maradona had the goal of the century. I think Steve Hodge has the trade of the century. Uh, so, pride, yeah, pride for England. Because
3: I'm quite sure the shirt he gave, he gave uh, a Maradona is not having that resale value. It's probably so. not having that resale. I, I would agree. I would agree. But
1: I, it, it, my prediction is some some London bloke is going to buy this thing and set fire to it in, in, in the middle of London. Well, I, that's
3: I, a good prediction, actually. That's a <laughs>
2: And turn it into an NFT. <laughs> yeah. If you set it on fire, you have to turn it into an NFT. it no, will be, be worth
3: it. Get you, get you two bites of the apple. To this point.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Adam Posen, it was a real treat to hear your thoughts. Um, Just absolutely perfect timing to have a a guy like you on it and and share their insight with us. We really appreciate it. And hopefully we can bring you back someday in the future. That'd
3: be great. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoy your podcast and I appreciate getting to partake in the fun. Thanks.
2: Thank you, Adam.
1: What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Ring Anonymous, Vildonaheirik is at Vildonaheirik. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. What Goes Up is produced by Magnus Henriksen and Stacy Wong. The head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time.